today we're talking about the signs and the manner of Christ's return. And as we say that, as Mark mentioned, uh, almost, I don't know of a, a series that doesn't, in a course of either personal Bible studies or public evangelism uh, presentations, doesn't approach the issue of the second coming as two separate things. Uh, because, well, and you'll notice, well, let's just start with this. The, the two study guides that this will correspond with in your It Is Written course is number two, seeing the signs, and then later on in the series, number 13, the second coming of Jesus. But for our purposes today, we're teaching you about the concept behind these two studies, so it's handy to put them together into one, one lecture time, okay? But I think there's a pretty decent reason why they put them in this sequence. First of all, the number one lesson that you always start with is Daniel chapter 2. Now you call it different things, the great metal man, or, or you know, the vision, that whatever, I don't know. You have all kinds of titles. Mine's entitled The Next World Superpower, which I borrowed from Mark Finley. And um, anyway, but all you're doing there is going through Daniel chapter 2, and because it's foundational, right? And it gives them the framework of prophecy that you're going to be going back to again and again. It also gives them the confidence that God's word is accurate and trustworthy, reliable. And now that you've demonstrated that the Bible is what it is, it is the very word of God, now it does matter what the Bible says about something. It's not just an opinion, it's actually the voice of God. So you establish that on number one. And then number two, this is how it is in my series, because if you notice that... Uh, I'm going to be going through my study guides on this one, which are in your, um, in your folder there. And by the way, I think they, they're printed off very, very nicely on nice thick paper. The only concern that I have is that their, their paging is off so that you have the fronts. They're designed to be a front and back single sheet of paper. But what you have is front side on one side of the page and the back side on the other side of the page. So I would encourage you, if you ever want to use them, you can just run them off on a Xerox machine and put them onto one sheet of paper like they're supposed to be. That's no big deal. But anyway, um, but this is exactly what I do too. Number two, the watch out, signs of Christ's return. And um, that's kind of what we're going to be going over in this particular section today. Now, why would the signs of Christ's return be one of the very first things you bring out in an evangelistic campaign or in a study series of Bible lessons. Why would that be a thing? Let's have some suggestions. What do you show think? Okay, show a need or urgency. What else? It's relevant to us right now. I like that one. Relevancy is a good term. but Because now you're taking something, uh, not only did you bring them up to where we are now in the toes of time, if you will, in Daniel chapter 2, but then you'll say, now look out of the page of the Bible and look around you and you'll see the very things the Bible was talking about. So you, that's a good one-two punch. And now they're realizing not only this interesting doctrinal, interesting academic whatever, but this is real. This is actually a thing that's going on now. People have the sense now that something is wrong with the world. Things are happening. And it answers yes. the question as in, why are these things happening? Yes. And that's going to come back to a point we're going to make later on. But I like that that point is, because remember one of the issues that we saw in what the scoffers in the last days, we're going to address that text, who come and say, everything's the same. And I tell you, there might have been a time, I don't know, I, I've only been around for less than 40 years of this world's history, 
but it's getting easier and easier and easier to convince people that things are weirder and weirder and weirder, right? You don't have to be particularly religious to say, stuff's different, you know? And so that's why the signs of the time thing is like, friends, did you know the Bible said that there are signs of Christ coming and they're all around us? They're like, yep, <laughs> we know, we're already there, you know? And so this is actually becoming easier and easier to do as the signs of the times because so many people completely outside of a religious context are recognizing that stuff is different now. And uh, there's a relevancy and a, an urgency to preparation for uh, seeing Jesus soon. So we're going to have that as our springboard into our study today. And what again, what we're going to attempt to do is not only walk you through how to uh, uh, know one of these Bible study uh, uh, worksheets, but to know the concept behind it so that even if you didn't have the worksheet, you could pretty, give a pretty good study just out of your head with a Bible in your hand. That's the goal, okay? But before we do any study of God's Word, what of course must we do first? All right, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this day of life that you've given us. Thank you that we can be here in this room for this purpose. And now as we study, particularly the signs of your coming and the manner of your coming, we know we're not just talking about theory or some sort of arch doctrine outside of our own experience, but right now we're living in the very time that the Bible describes as the last days of earth's history. Please, Lord, help us not only to know it for ourselves, but give us the ability by your grace to share it effectively with others. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Let's go to the book of Revelation. I like to draw this to people's attention that the book of Revelation is the very last book of the Bible. It was the last book written. And here the, um, you have these closing prophecies of that time that look to the end time of earth's history. And the book of Revelation is bookended with the promise of the return of Jesus. For instance, Revelation chapter 1, verse 3. Notice what it says here. Blessed is he who reads and, who, and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it. And anytime you're with people, again, it's going back to that. It's not just the hearers, but the doers, right? So notice there's a blessing for those who read and those who hear and keep those things which are in it. But why is there a blessing? For the time is what? Near. For the time is near. So what is the time that is near? It doesn't just say because the Bible is true or because God is real, but there's a particular time. There's a setting for a sense of urgency. Well, look at verse 7 right there, still in chapter 1. And it gives a thought on this. Behold, that is, look, he is coming with clouds and every eye will see him. Even they who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. So what is the time that the Apostle John is referring to that gives us a sense of urgency for understanding and applying the message of Revelation? It's the second coming of Jesus. Now go to the very last page of the Bible. Revelation chapter 22. And I want you to notice how often this is mentioned, not just mentioned offhandedly, but seems to be the singular thrust of the last page of the Bible. And I like to say the last page of the Bible because many people are not biblically literate. It's not just like this book happens to end here, but this is the last book, the last chapter, the very last page of the Bible. It's like the Bible was running up to a cliff and this is the very last thing. 
And what's the thing that we need to know? Revelation chapter 22 and verse 7 says, Behold, I am coming. How? Quickly. Notice it doesn't say, Behold, I am coming someday. (laughs) It has quickly in there. Behold, I am coming quickly. Uh, Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Notice there's a bookend. Blessing for those who hear and keep, because the time is near. Now at the end, blessed. Uh, I'm sorry, behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the word of the prophecy of this book. Skip down to verse 12. And behold, I am coming, how? Quickly. And my reward is with me, to give to everyone according to his work. By the way, that's a very handy passage, especially with verse 11. This is a little parenthesis for you. Notice that there's the judgment and then the return of Jesus. Verse 11, he who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. So the distinction between the sheep and the goats, the good and the bad, the wheat and the tares, however you want to say it. And then Christ says, and behold, I am coming quickly. So that a separation happens before Christ returns. And notice it says, what's he coming to do? He's not coming to establish the judgment. He's coming to dole out the reward. My reward is already with me just to give. So he's not, he's not coming to determine, he's coming to give, right? Let's go to verse 20. Notice what he's reading here again. Look, and, and by the way, there's only 21 verses in chapter 20. These are the very last sentences, right? He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming quickly. By the way, do you notice that he who testifies is Jesus Christ, the one who's coming, and he's giving a prophecy? Thus, the testimony of Jesus is the Spirit of prophecy. You'll notice there's an interchange with that all the time. It's a little parenthetical thought there, but surely, certainly, he says, I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. So what I like to have is people fill out in the worksheet, the repeated and closing promise of revelation is that Jesus is coming quickly. He means soon. Quickly, quickly, quickly. Now, let's go to our scoffers. Because in a presentation, I like to Make it clear. Do you see that Jesus himself says he's coming quickly? They say yes, repeatedly, over and over, right at the very end of the Bible. Then how is this written some 2,000 years ago and he hasn't come yet? What kind of quickly is that all about, right? Let's go to 2 Peter. And not only can I read your mind that you were going to have that, but friend, the Bible read your mind 2,000 years ago. That when you say nothing has changed in the last 2,000 years, I think this whole notion is ridiculous. You can say, thank you for fulfilling a prophecy right here at the table. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days. And I would be uh, bold enough if I had the relationship with the individual. It's like, what was your name, sir? Bob? Okay, Bob. The Bible says that you, Bob, would come in the last days. Right? No, no, no. I'm just saying, you are a fulfillment of prophecy, my friend. Scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, here's what's going to be on their lips. This is their scoff. Where is the promise of his coming? And you have to acknowledge there seems to be a tension. Urgency, urgency, quickly, quickly. So where is it? Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. We're going to come back to that concept, but that's the scoffers are saying, where is this thing happening? 
Now, let's let Jesus answer that and go to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24, verses 42, and, and I would tell the people, Matthew chapter 24 is an entire chapter that Jesus himself devotes to talking about his second coming. So it's pretty important when Jesus, the same one who says, I am coming quickly in Revelation, now describes that coming in Matthew chapter 24, we should give it credence. So if you don't, you don't have to ask me, ask Jesus. What does Jesus say about his own coming? Matthew chapter 24, verses 42 to 44. But know this. Pause right there. If the Bible says to know this, what should we do? Know it. <laughs> if Jesus himself says to know this, by all means, know it. Here's the thing Jesus said, know this. Oh, I'm sorry, verse 42, I, 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 got you, I got you the wrong one. I started in 43. Verse 42, watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. We do not have a time for Christ's return, period. We just don't. Now, because you're the extra credit students, Let's talk about that for a little bit. Have you ever noticed that everything else in Christ's ministry had a time? It had a time. For instance, was there a time prophesied for the coming of the Messiah the first time? Yes. Daniel chapter 9 outlines, right, the, the, his beginning of his ministry. And by the way, when Jesus was born, what age did he come to a grasp of who he was, his true identity? He was 12, right? No, the Bible says so. Spirit of prophecy makes it clear. Uh, this is Jesus recognized. Ah, all that learning. I always had a sense about something. He saw the Lamb. He's like, that's me. He said, behold, the Lamb of God. And he's looking, right? But what did he do for the next 18 years? He was subject to his parents. They came and got him. He said, did you not know I must be about my father's business? He knew who his father, who his father was and what his business was. But for 18 years, he went home with mom and dad. How long was Jesus' public ministry? Three and a half years. You could almost look and say, why did he waste his 20s? Christ was operating on a prophetic calendar. Now, I'm sure he was making preparations and laying the groundwork, but it wasn't time to step out into his public work until the time was fulfilled. He was operating by a calendar. There was a divinely established time, right? Was there a time when, for instance, when people were going to... Why, why could, when he went home to Nazareth and he preached from the book of Isaiah and said, this scripture is me, what was the response of the people? And they were filled with joy. Is that what the Bible says? No. And they were filled with wrath, the Bible says, and they went, carried him off to take him to the edge of the cliff to throw him off the cliff. Why didn't Jesus die that day? <laughs> Jesus, and it, Jesus said, walking through the midst of them, he went on his way. It's like, it's, like, it's, not, it's not a good day for me right now. Thank you. It's not, it's not my time. But did Jesus know when his time was approaching? Yes. The hours, you know, he keeps, it's like he has this clock in his head, right? The day of Pentecost, 50 days, right? By the way, there's the three days of resurrection, right? But then 50 days later, why did he only spend 40 days with his disciples after his resurrection? There's a scheduled appointment for him to get to. And why did Jesus say, in a few days, the Holy Spirit report, the promise will be given. How did he know it was only a few days away? Because he knows Bible prophecy. 
There was a time for every element of Christ's work. There's a schedule. When he ascended in heaven, began his holy place ministry work there. But was there a time to go from the holy place to the most holy place? Sure. You look at the sanctuary structure. He grew up in the camp. His ministry and culminating death was in the courtyard. Heaven then represents the two inner rooms, the holy and most holy places. There's a phase one and phase two, and each one of those had a starting point. Every step of his ministry, except for the second coming, has a specific time. Does that mean that it's a negotiable thing, that it may not happen? No, I happen to believe that's for our best interest, to not know the time. Anyway, but that's going to be the scoff. They're like, hey, 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 he said he's coming. Tick tock. Been a long time. Thought you served an on-time God. Jesus himself says, verse 42 again in Matthew 24, Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. It does not say watch, for you do not know if your Lord is coming. It's a certainty, it's just not a certain time. Verse 43, but know this, if the master of the... So we don't know what time it is, for sure, but we can know this, but know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour... The thief would have come. He would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. There is a day. There is a time. It just hasn't been revealed to us. We don't know what hour that is. But Christ's thing is to say, watch. He doesn't say calculate. He says, watch. Okay? Go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now, people sometimes get this idea that... Um, well, it's a thief in the night, and many of our evangelical friends will say that means we don't know anything about the manner of his coming, or except that it's going to be a secret. That's what we know about the manner, is that we can't know anything about it. No, 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 no. Christ wasn't talking about the manner of coming. He was talking about the timing of his coming, the day and the hour you don't know, but watch, right? The thief in the night is an idea pertaining to timing, not the manner of his coming. But then you add 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, because you could say, well, I guess we're just stumbling around in the dark till one day Jesus will come without any warning whatsoever. Is that how it's supposed to work? No, not that either. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1 says, But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. Again, which is a reference to timing, not manner. For when they say, peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them. And this is interesting. He says, as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. We're going to see later on where he came up with that thief in the night analogy and labor pains analogy. He lifted them both directly from Matthew 24. Paul didn't come up with his own theology. He got it from Jesus. But notice the contrast then, verse 4. All of that Jesus has said before, but notice what Paul adds. But you, brethren are not in darkness so that this day should overtake, overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are, not, uh, son, we are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us, what's the verb? Watch and be sober. Notice he, said, he took Christ's idea of watching and the thief in the night. We're going to see the labor pains. All of that came from Jesus. He said, yes, it will seem to some as like a completely random, where did that come from event? But he said, it doesn't have to be that way with you. Though you don't know the time, you should look for, notice the verb is always watch. It's never count. 
You're not counting down the days till Christ's coming. You're watching for something. Now, how cruel would it be for the Bible to give us the urgent, imperative watch and not tell you what to watch for? And you're say, watch. You're like, you're like, look out for what? Don't worry about it. No, that's the one thing I must worry about. And they said, watch out for what? So Jesus says, watch. Paul says, watch. So it only makes sense that we should see what to watch for. Okay. Thus, we get to fill in our blank here. We're watching not for the time of Christ's return, but for the signs of Christ's return. So what we've done is there's been a transition from now, clearly, other prophecies had signs to go with them, too, but there were clear delineations in time. This will be this long until this date, this kind of thing. But there isn't that for the second coming. So you could say, well, since there's no more time, I guess we're just randomly waiting till he shows up. No. Though we don't know the time, we have been given signs to watch for. And as we watch for the signs, we stay in the light of God's word compared with the evidence around us, right? So... How do we know the signs? Well, we go back to Matthew chapter 24 and we just start going through them. Jesus himself outlined what the signs to watch for were. Now, again, this is not necessarily something I would share with, the, with your study interests, but look at the context of Matthew chapter 24. Um, as you would expect, it comes right after Matthew chapter 23. And what is Matthew chapter 23 about? He's gone to the temple for the last time, and he has the, the, the woes on the, on the hypocrites, the scribes and the Pharisees. And, and go to verse 37 of Matthew 23 and look at the context of Matthew 24. Jesus says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your ch children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What is that a reference to? The second coming, right? He says, I'm walking out of this, and you're not going to see me more till then. Then it goes immediately to chapter 24, verse 1. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to him to show him the, temple, the buildings of the temple. That's an interesting thing. He's leaving the temple, and they're like, hey, 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 did you see all the buildings? Yeah, I saw him. I walked in and now I'm walking out. Why do you think they were showing him the... It seems to be like they think Jesus has gone a little bit far and saying things a little bit strong and you don't really mean that. I mean, look at... Just look. You know. And Jesus counters. Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Notice there's two events. The coming of the Lord and the destruction of the temple. Jesus has in mind two things. He gives the big picture, the Lord is coming, that's when you'll see me return. And the disciples are like, look, look at this temple. It's like, do you see the temple? Not one stone's going to be left upon another. Now, 2,000 years later, we know that that event happened in AD 70. And Christ's return has still yet to happen. But notice here the question they ask. From their minds, having seen neither one of these events, they can rightly, they, they assume that he's talking about one event where Christ returned, destroy the temple, and set up his everlasting kingdom, right? They're, they're conflating these into one. What Jesus doesn't say is, oh, no, 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 no. One's going to happen in about 40 years. The next one's going to happen in about 2,000 years. He doesn't do that. But notice in their minds, those two events are one. 
verse 3. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? Now, one event for these two things to occur. You see that? When will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So in their mind, the coming of Jesus, the end of the world is the only thing that can bring down that temple. And they're saying these great things, when will they happen and what will be the sign for it? And again, Christ doesn't say, no, no, I'm talking about two separate things. Let me first give you a prophecy about the one and then I'll give you a prophecy. What he does is he gives prophecy that applies to both of them. So as you read through here, the very things that applied at the second coming had a local application within the lifetime of the people listening. But there's the big picture in time version that's applicable to our lives today. So, um, let's just go through them. The first thing he says, verse 3, Now as he sat on the mountain, oh, I'm sorry, verse 4, And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one, what? That's interesting. He does not say, Take heed that no one persecutes you. Doesn't the Bible guarantee that persecution is going to come? Sure enough. And remember we talked about Satan has two weapons, deception and persecution, and only one of them works. It's deception. He does not say watch out for earthquakes or wars or famines or pestilence or persecution or death. He doesn't say anything. His very first thing, his very highest concern is that watch out that no one does what? Deceives you. Spiritual deception. The primary thing that Christ warned about. And notice what he says in verse 5. For many will come how? In my name. So notice the primary deceptive power. He says it's going to come in his own name. And saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. doesn't say might deceive me. There's going to be a great spiritual deception in the world. Staying in Matthew chapter 24, but skipping to verses 24 and 25. Notice he comes back to this idea. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to do what? To deceive, if possible, whom? Even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So we should be watchful for an increase of spiritual deception, even in the name of Christianity, in the guise of Christianity. False spiritual teachers, people claiming Christ's name but teaching things contrary to his commands. Results seen uh, in general religious confusion even among Christians. Why is there so many denominations? Why are there so many religious... That should be expected. Satan is doing as much as he can to completely stir the pot with spiritual deception that people are completely awash and all kinds of stuff. And he says, watch out, not deceived. So we should look for a climate of increasing, intense spiritual deception. Staying with Matthew 24, going back then, we're just walking through verse 6 now. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. So it's not going to end with one great big war. Wars and rumors of wars are a sign that we're getting close to the end, but it is not the end. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And as we know, the 20th century was the bloodiest in history, which we only think history is only 6,000 years, but that's still a lot. To have one 100-year span out of 6,000, it just happens to be the one at the very end here. Now, it's even greater for the atheists who think that, the evolutionists who think we've been here around for millions of millions of years. And this is, I mean, it's even more significant for them, but that's a big deal. The 21st century has not become more peace-like, by the way. I don't know if you've noticed this, but one thing has changed in my lifetime. 
I don't know when we're at war anymore. Have you noticed that? Is the United States currently at war? With whom? <laughs> Let me ask you, have we, do, we have a, do we have a declaration of war? Are we at war with another nation? Yes or no? In this room, we can't make up our minds. Even when I was a kid, I knew, oh, now we're at war. <laughs> that, my friends, is what a war looks like. Today, there's war, there's rumors of war, there's kind of war, quasi-war, semi-war, demi-war, <laughs> drone war. Yeah, I mean, and now we have these cells and sleepers. I mean, the, the whole nature of all this has happened in the last decade or so, and it's increasingly so. What nations are at war right now? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's almost easy to say what isn't, you know. Yeah. Yeah, but the Cold War at least was, it was blockades and, you know. I don't know. I'm guessing if you were over there, it'd be pretty hot right now. Anyway, but again, by the way, this is, I do like to, I wasn't kidding about that Google News feed. This is today's. I just pulled it up a second ago. Uh, one of the very top stories here, top stories. Syria conflict. U.S. just downs Iranian-made uh, Iranian, Iranian drone. Um, the next story. After Otter Warmbier, I don't know how to say the names, death, tourism to North Korea comes under scrutiny because you understand that they had a, a young man from the United States was over there and pulled down a poster, a political poster. He got sentenced to 15 years hard labor and, some, and now he's returned to the United States and died yesterday from traumatic brain injury that was suffered under persecution. And they're like, we must respond. How do you think we should respond? Sanctions? Or should we go blow some stuff up? I don't know, but that's what we're going to be talking about. <laughs> um, I'm, not, I'm just making this. 25 minutes ago, extreme heat forces flight cancellations in Southwest. Mercury expected to hit all-time high. The next story down. Tropical storm Cindy. Weather advisories issued earlier to alert public to... This is Matthew 24 stuff. Tropical storms, heat waves, wars and rumors of wars, and it's all increasing in intensity, and we know more about it, and it's more... Yeah, the shooting, yeah. Yeah, and... Uh, <laughs> well, the local stuff here, I'm sure, is Satan himself just trying to end camp meeting. <laughs> They're not general signs. I think he's specifically targeting us. But anyway, my point is, as we keep reading Matthew 24, tell me if that Google News feed doesn't just come through here. Let's go to verse 7 still. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. You break it down, natural disasters. Um, Famines, you know, currently one-sixth of the earth is experiencing famine. Uh, 50 to 60,000 starve daily. Uh, decreasing, decreasing agricultural lands. The world population is becoming unstable. 780 million lack access to clean water. Pestilences. Already, I wrote this, I think, a year or two ago, and it's already out of date. Pestilences or diseases. AIDS, Ebola, epidemics, uh, SARS, bird flu, uh, West Nile virus, resurgence and resistance. Un, uh, disease, old things we had beaten are coming back. You know, um, by the way, the number one diseases in America are not those foreign exotic ones, by the way. It's like heart disease, right? And they're lifestyle things. Where is that kind of stuff coming from? Who's giving us that plague? We are. We are self-inflicting plagues. By the way, did, did the Bible ever talk about that? That in the last days, men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, and it's just the society. And we're going to get down to that. That's one of the key recognitions of the last days is society as a whole is starting to become 
less and less like Christ and more and more like self, whatever we want, and it's degrading accordingly. Fascinating. Now, let's go down to Matthew 24. Again, what did Jesus say in verse 6 about the wars and rumors of war? See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. All those things that Christ is listing out there, the wars, the rumors of wars, the famines, the pestilence, diseases, all that stuff, which is horrible and awful, is not the great end thing. Those are just signs that the end is near. In fact, look down again at verse 8. Jesus says it again. All these are the beginnings of, and my version says, sorrows. What does your version say? Does anybody have something that doesn't say sorrows? I think if you had the New International Version, it would say birth pangs. But the word for sorrows there is labor pain. It's contractions. Now, uh, my wife and I have had three children, uh, six, four, and two. And um, <laughs> I'll tell you a little bit. The, um, my wife and I are both very frugal. And my wife has two master's degrees in the health field. And she wanted to, she didn't want to have the epidural. And she certainly didn't want a C-section. She, she wanted as little intervention as possible. In fact, she wanted to do it all natural. And since I'm not a woman, I don't have any say in the matter. I'm just like, whatever you want, sweetie, I'll hold your hand. And um, now, the, now it, 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 was, it wasn't that long ago, and I remember it was, it's a very surreal thing to go from being not a father to being a father. And especially before the baby is born, things, I, I, I wasn't used to a pregnant woman. I had never lived with one before. I'd barely associated with one before, you know. Now I've got one that's married to me and we're together all the time. And it was a fascinating evolution to watch the process grow, you know. And um, one of the things that was frustrating from my perspective, and I've told this with her in the room, it's okay, but there was, a, in the earliest stages, you don't see anything. There's no physical evidence as a baby. You just look exactly the same. But I'd come home and she would just be laying on the couch. And I'm like, what are you doing? What have you been doing? What have you done? <laughs> She's like, I'm just tired. It's like, tired from what? I don't get it, you know? I was like, I know. <laughs> I felt it brought us together, to, to be honest with each other. You know, no, I, I would do it in a Jesus loves you kind of smiley way. But the question was still the same. Like, what in the world? We and she's like, I don't know. I just, I don't have it in me. It's just going. And I was expecting that tiredness would come when you're holding like this nine pound, whatever. But apparently you can be tired just from having it at all in any, any stage of it. Okay, so there was the tired phase. Then we went through the bean burrito phase, right? And I don't know why, but she wanted bean burritos. And I'm talking like, go get me six at tacos. Okay, whatever. And, and then, yeah, and as it, but then you start to see progression is like that. Now we're starting to see some definition. Now things are moving along, you know, but it's nowhere near like we're about to have a baby. We're just now easing into pregnancy itself. But you know that there are processes at play. I didn't have the morning sickness. No, nope. no, I didn't either. No, I, I was fine. Honestly, my, my taste didn't change at all. I, I'm fine. Uh, anyway. Uh, but we want to, now, as we got closer and closer, well, the, I'll tell you, the first child that we had, Henry, uh, she was in labor for seven hours. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. <laughs> We're getting there. So we didn't know exactly what to expect, and she had never given birth, and it was, it, it was, it was whatever. 
The next one, we're like, we got this. We're, we're a little bit better. And we did the non-intervention thing, but we did it in a hospital setting. The whole time we were like pushing all the medical people away. We want to do this. It was kind of a headache and hassle. She said, for everything we did here, and certainly for the cost, we could have done this in the backyard. <laughs> so we're not going to do it in the backyard. She's like, fine, we'll do it in the house. But we're doing it at home. And that's what we did with our next one. We had him at home. And that labor was two hours. Now, now here's the thing. When, but they tell you, when the midwife... It wasn't like we just just the two of us. We had a midwife. It wasn't, you know. And they told it, okay, when you start getting closer to the end, you will, you're certain things to watch for, right? And you're, what are, and some of you may be experienced in this in the room, what are some things you're watching for for the final terminus of this experience? Water breaking? Water breaking? <laughs> That's a sign. Which, by the way, the water-breaking thing didn't happen until the third one. First, we'd never seen that before. We didn't know what to expect. That was a surprise when it did happen. Um, okay. Contractions. What about contractions? All right, they get stronger, and they get close together. They're supposed to, you're supposed, if you just have a little one, you can even have false ones, little Braxton Hicks ones. You know that they're, they're starting to happen, but they're not the real thing. Right? But they're letting you know that the real things are coming. But anyway, but apparently, and I... I don't know this from experience, but apparently you can tell the difference between one of those and one of the real ones. Apparently there's a noticeable difference. My wife told me there is a di this was different. Okay, I'll take your word for it. And by this time the signs were all around. And um, then you start timing them, right? And if they're X many minutes apart, you've got roughly this amount of time. But we really don't know. We just know it's getting closer. And even at the very close, the, the midwife still can't say, or the doctor cannot say, it's going to be born at 10.16. But they know it's generally in that area. At certain times, you don't want to drive too far away. Even earlier, you can't fly on an airplane far away. You've got to start circling the wagons, getting closer to home, because you're kind of nesting. You're, you're, you don't know the day or the hour, but you're watching for these signs, right? And if you can't speak through the contraction, you know, it, it's really, really close. And just for what it's worth, when we had our second one, we knew the first one was seven hours. So we were like, we got about seven hours. Little we didn't know, they vary each time. And so the midwife told us at an hour, after she's been in labor for an hour, give me a call. No problem. So I waited for the hour and gave her a call. And she says, all right, I'm on the way. But that midwife was like 45 minutes away. And it was snowy. Was it snowy that time? The third time it definitely was. It was a blizzard. <laughs> anyway, we had the pool and everything, and we're all grown-ups in the room, and <laughs> it started happening, and the midwife wasn't there. And there's me and her mom and this pool of water, and then this other person started to make their way out. And I'm on the speakerphone with the midwife yelling, get here now, drive faster, I'm looking at a head, you have to come here now. And you should have seen, boom, they barged in finally just in time to scoop this, and I was like, oh, this is the worst 20 minutes of my life, this is the most, it was, but, you, but it's incredible how you can just watch the process and it happens. You know at that time, I don't know what time it is, but it's not gonna be another week. <laughs> it's happening sometime in this framework of time, right? People will camp. Coming back to the scoffers. All things continue have, as they have been since the beginning of creation, right? That's the scoff. They're going to say, but look, we've, there's been wars. There's been earthquakes. 
So what's the big deal? But the difference is the Bible repeatedly, both Jesus and Paul, compare those signs to birth pains, to contractions, which you know is getting close to the real event when they increase in intensity and in frequency. So you're not saying that the end time signs are some new thing that has never happened. No, there have been earthquakes, there have been wars, there have been diseases. But what we're seeing is a frequency and an intensity unparalleled in human history. See what I'm saying? That the wars are bigger and more people are dying. Or they're more broad spread out. Or they're more frequently happening. Or we can't even tell when it's happening. It's just such a constant drumbeat of war. Pestilences and plagues and diseases. How much, how many more diseases are out there and how many cross pollen? I mean, it's just, it's huge. By the way, I like to bring this up too, that um, other people, we talked about this, other people know, not even religious people, start to acknowledge that things are weird. Um, this is from Stephen Hawking. You ever heard of Stephen Hawking? Okay, good. He's this generation's Albert Einstein, right? Allegedly the smartest man in the world, and I have no bone to pick with that. In 1997, he delivered a lecture at Cambridge University entitled, Is Man Determined or Free? And Ravi Zacharias uh, reports on this. And this is his quote, Stephen Hawking said, I fear that since the evolutionary progress has worked through the dialectic of determinism and aggression, our long-term survival and any hope for our species is in question. However, if we can keep from destroying each other for the next hundred years, sufficient technology will have been developed to distribute humanity to various planets, and then no one tragedy or atrocity will eradicate us all at the same time. Basically, he said, if we can keep ourselves in check for about a hundred more years, technology will advance far enough that we can rocket ourselves away from this earth and then we'll be safe. That was 1997. April 27, 2007. You can find this in the WashingtonPost.com. Reported, quote, life on earth is at the ever-increasing risk of being wiped out by a disaster such as sudden global warming, nuclear war, or genetically engineered viruses or other dangers. Notice, uh, ecological signs, warfare, and plagues, pestilences. Stephen Hawking says, I think the human race has no future if it doesn't go into space. I therefore want to encourage public interest in space. His interest in going to other planets is because he sees that this one is running down. Ecologically, militarily, all kinds of, uh, 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 in, in terms of disease, and we're just imploding. No, not a, no, diehard atheist. Diehard atheist. He just happens to see things that Jesus talked about. What are the odds? By the way, ever heard of Elon Musk? He's the guy who runs Tesla and SpaceX. Trying to develop the Hyperloop. I mean, he's a, he's a pretty creative guy. And by creative, I mean filthy rich. <laughs> but listen to this. Elon Musk has outlined an ambitious timeline for colonizing the red planet, Mars which he said could begin as soon as 2022. Speaking to the International Astronautical Congress in Mexico in September, Musk described a 400-foot-tall rocket that would ferry 100 colonists at a time to Mars over a period of decades. So you'd spend decades in this canister riding out to Mars. And he explains why. He says, one path for our future is that we stay on Earth forever, and then there will be an inevitable extinction event. That we could just stay here, but if we stay here, we're all going to die. 
He told the audience of scientists and engineers, the alternative is to become a spacefaring civilization, a multi-planetary species. And I got this one from June 16, 2017. This was three days ago. An article published on CNBC.com. Quote, Elon Musk thinks life on Earth will go extinct and is putting most of his fortune towards colonizing Mars. I don't know why they think if we go to Mars, we're not going to ruin that place too. It's like, it's like, then we're not going to fight there. Yeah, we are. There's fewer resources. We'll fight harder. Anyway, um, quote, if we stay on Earth forever, there will be some eventual extinction event, says Elon Musk in, a, Musk in an article published in an academic journal, New Space. In it, Musk says the alternative to this doomsday is for humans to become a multiplanetary species. He says Mars is the place to do it. Quote, I should also add that the main reason I am personally accumulating assets, this is a multi-billionaire, he says the main reason I am personally accumulating assets is in order to fund this, says Musk of his wealth. I really do not have any other motivation for personally accumulating assets, assets except to be able to make the biggest contribution I can to making life multiplanetary. You get the point, the wealthiest, the most influential, the most brilliant people are looking around this world and saying, if we stay here, we're not going to have it here anymore. We're done. Whether it's through disease or ecological demise or war or something, we're going to kill ourselves off or it's all going to end somehow. So the only hope we have is to start spreading humanity all over space. And Mars isn't the closest planet, but at least it has, you know, ground. <laughs> Going to Venus wouldn't be that good. It's just a big ball of gas. So they think Mars is the place to do it. So they're, and they're not making this up. You look at Jeff Bezos, who just bought Whole Foods for Amazon. By the way, he's only $5 billion short now of being the wealthiest man in the world. <laughs> yeah. I would love to be in the position like, you're only $5 billion away. <laughs> I don't have any billions, but... Richard Branson, Elon Musk, Stephen Hawking, the people who think and run this world are looking at this world and saying, we're running out of time. We're killing ourselves. We're done. Planets falling apart. It's like wearing out like a garment. They're speaking biblical truth even though they have no idea about their fulfilling prophecy. It's fascinating to me. Jesus says, verse, chapter 24, verses 32 and 33, Now learn this lesson. So we should learn this lesson. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. And we'll come back to this one. I like to close with this idea here, that there were two more signs. Notice what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, verse 12, in that list of signs. The love of many will grow cold. And then I like to go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Yes, 2 Timothy chapter 3. Now when when Paul describes end-time events, here at least in this particular context, notice what he says. And again, he lifts so much language from Christ. But know this, verse 1 of 2 Timothy 3, in the last days, perilous times will come. And you think, oh, those scary last days, earthquakes and wars and famines. That's not what he's talking about. He tells us what he's talking about. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, 
unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. I don't know a better apt description for our Western society than this particular passage. Love yourselves, you love money, you love pleasure, you seek for your own, you're all about you, you disregard parents, and all authority is gone, I am it for me. Scariest thing is in verse 5, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. And from such people turn away. You start breaking down the very moral condition of the world, because we've talked about the ecological condition, the geopolitical condition, the military condition, and the whatever. But now you look at the moral decay of the world, and I think this is one of the clearest signs of all. Increasingly a heartless and violent society, think of violent media, whether it's music, television, cinema, video games, etc., depicting murder, rape, kidnapping, animal cruelty, human trafficking. There are more slaves, by the way. I forgot where I got this quote from, but it's from one of those secular news articles. There are more slaves than at any time in human history, right now in the world. 27 million of them. Slavery. People owned by other people doing their bidding without any hope of freedom. It might be for sexual exploitation. It might be for hard labor. It might be whatever. The erosion of family values. Divorce rate has continued to climb. You see an, exceeding, uh, an increasingly accepted homosexual agenda. You see abortion, pleasure-driven society, alcoholism, drug abuse, obesity, etc. And that's what we talked about, the, the diseases that were... <laughs> now, everybody's so afraid of these exotic, one-off, one-in-a-million diseases. When they were dying of cancer and, and, and heart disease and all these things. It's self-inflicted. Media saturation. Again, music, television, movies, internet... Gambling, sports addiction, consumer debt, pornography. And the internet, the technology that has increased, has only given us a greater access and, oh, it's incredible. But you could give, if you end this with a doomsday scenario that, man, weather's going to fall apart, the wars are going to increase, there's more disease, the morals are going to corrupt, everybody's going to hate each other, we're, even the wisest and richest people are trying to get out of here. Let's bow our heads for prayer. <laughs> <laughs> It's not a particularly stirring presentation, right? It can be a very dark, like, man, the world is falling apart. I was right. The Bible says so. You're like, yes, it is. But you got to close with 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 11 and 12. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the, com- the coming of the day of God? That apparently God's people, God will have a people, who are faithful even through all of this, and by God's grace in their life and their efforts on his behalf, will hasten the coming of Jesus. Go to Matthew chapter 23, I mean chapter 24. We just saw in verse 12, we were just talking about how the love of many will grow cold, but Christ doesn't end there. He says, but, verse 13, he who endures till the end shall be what? Will there be people who are faithful in the last days? Yes. Will they be those who endure to the end? Yes. And will God abandon them? No. They'll be saved. He who endures to the end will be saved. And, verse 14, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then, what will happen? What is the final sign of Christ's coming? The gospel to the whole world. There's going to be a people who endure to the end And this gospel will go to all the world, and then the end will come. 
He specifically says wars, pestilences, disease, disaster, all of that kind of stuff. Don't sweat those. Those will be the signs of his coming that will increase in intensity and frequency. But the great thing at the end, there will be a people who speak for, on behalf of the Lord and give the gospel to the world, and then the end will come. And for the extra credit in the room, as we bring this one to a close, just about one hour. Oh, this is about right. I don't know if you've ever seen this, and maybe they've already pointed it out in another section, but leave your finger there in Matthew chapter 24 and flip over to Revelation chapter 14. And I don't know if I'm stepping on somebody else's message here, if I show them Revelation 14 compared to Matthew 24. But I want to show you something fascinating. Because sometimes Seventh-day Adventists will ask, well, why can't we just, you know, if we're giving the gospel to the world, why can't we just sign up with the Billy Graham crusade and give our money to them or whatever else? Why do we have to, like, Let's just preach Jesus, right? Let me show you something, friends. What did we just read in Matthew chapter 24, verse 13? He who endures till the end shall be saved. There will be people who endure till the end and they will be saved. And, verse 14, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations. And the final thing is, and then the end will come. You have a people, you have a message, and then the end. Look at Revelation chapter 14. Verses 1 through 5 describe those people. The 144,000 and notice it says about them in verse 5, And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. They have endured till the end. They are saved, and in their mouth is not deceit, but pure truth. And what is the message they bear? Verse 6, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting what? Gospel. To do what? To preach. To whom? Those who dwell on the earth. To every nation, tribe, tongue, and people saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come. Notice, what are they preaching? The gospel. But what are they saying? The judgment. Friends, I thought we were just supposed to preach the gospel. Yes. But do you see that there's, there's an accountability of God because there's a judgment that has now come. Worship Him who created, it's a call back to the Creator. There's a purity of faith and a message directly from God in these last days that is the Gospel. Okay? Fear God and give glory to Him for the hour of His judgment has come and worship Him who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. And thus we have the first of the three angels' messages. And what's the very next thing that happens after the three angels' messages? Verse 14, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. What is that a reference to? Second coming of Jesus. You have those who endure to the end, you have the gospel to the whole world, and then the end shall come. The last sign of Jesus' coming is having a faithful people who are useful in his cause and hastening the coming of Christ. Friends, we can be one of the final signs. We can not only look for and hope for and wait for and watch for, but we can work for the coming of the Lord and hasten it, being a sign of the end. Is that inspiring to you? It's exciting to me that, yes, we can look around and see, but we don't have to be hapless victims and just observers. Up oh, there it goes, there it goes, there it goes. But apparently we're supposed to be one of the last signs too. So I'll make an appeal. And I know I was just kidding before about, you got to stop what you're doing, camp meeting, go get a Bible study right now today. But I'm serious, friends. You need to go give a Bible study to somebody. You need to share this message. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the what? By the word of their testimony. There's always this idea that if you have this message, you're supposed to be a messenger and get the message out so we don't have to just look for it, but we can hasten the coming of Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you.
Thank you that your coming, yes, is soon, but according to your promise, we can make soon, sooner. We look around and we see a world falling apart at the seams, from natural disasters to diseases and wars and rumors of wars, and we see them with intensing, uh, increasing intensity and frequency. But Lord, help us not cower in fear, but help us to have confidence that your word has said this very thing would happen. And Lord, help us to be one of those final signs of your soon coming. Let us be your three angels' messengers as we look for and hasten the coming of Jesus. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we're going to take out our next study guide. Um, again, as I mentioned before, the signs of Christ's coming in the Is Written Studies is number two. Yet the manner of Christ's coming is not till number 13. And as Mark alluded to, this used to be one of the big, um, I think it's becoming less and less of an issue in people's mind because I think there's fewer and fewer people who are doctrinally aligned with any particular denomination or are actually theologically um, interested enough to know about the difference between the secret rapture. And there was a faddish time in the, I think it was like the early 90s, mid-90s when the Left Behind was kind of a thing. But it's been a while now and people have got other things wrapped around in their mind. So there really isn't, I mean, clearly there are some people who are adherents to the secret rapture. They're absolutely out there. But I don't know that they're so diehard in their convictions about it that it's necessarily a deal breaker. But um, it is important when we talk about the second coming because all we did in the last study there was say that Jesus is coming soon, Jesus is coming soon. But in their mind, they might have a picture of that Jesus is coming soon and we won't know what happened until it's over. And here we are and the bus driver's gone or whatever. You know, they just, they've got that Tim LaHaye uh, secret rapture futurism thing in their head. Uh, mine is called uh, the not-so-secret rapture. It's number 15. Uh, 15, one five. What I'm saying is that in the... All right, hang on, folks. Hang on, folks. Hang on. Shh, shh, shh. Wait, 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 wait. In the It Is Written lessons, the manner of the second coming is covered in lesson number 13. In the, in the Unlock Revelation studies, it's number 15. But I wanted to highlight that the signs of Christ's coming are usually shown right toward the very beginning, and the manner of Christ's coming is at the very end. Not the very end, but towards the end, at least towards the middle. So. I, I think that part of it was because this, if you hit secret rapture is not really happening on night number two, you haven't built enough rapport, you know, that kind of thing. There's some things you've got to get to first. But by this time, you've probably covered things like the, uh, probably even covered the state of the dead and the, 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 the Sabbath truth and those kind of things. So now they're more, they're open to the more testing truths. Would that be about right, Mark? What do you have thoughts on why they're separated so far apart? You have to understand that people believe in the secret rapture because it offers them a way out of the coming tribulation. It's very comforting. <laughs> it's an escape thing, yeah. All the Antichrist stuff you're talking about, that's all cool because I'm not going to be here. Some Christians will be raptured, and so if you pull that away right away, we would lose lots of people on that because they say, I don't want to know it. Yep. I want to know about this. If you tell me I'm going to be here and I'm not going to be raptured. Yeah. Well, and we'll not, looking at our time, and we really don't have to, there's, the, the crux of the study is the first page of it, is the idea, is defeating this idea that it's a, uh, a secret, silent, limited, this whole kind of thing. We're going to show that it's the exact opposite of it. In the same way that, well, for instance, when I do the Antichrist, Mark knows this, I spend an entire night talking about who the Antichrist isn't without identifying who the Antichrist is. Because most people think that the Antichrist is a military political figure that's going to rise in the very last days. He's going to be obviously anti-Christian. He's going to be a persecuting power and he's going to you know, basically have horns and a pitchfork. Blah. 
When in reality, the Bible shows a complete opposite picture of that. So we want to un- undo that. And kind of the same thing here. Um, people think that this second coming is going to be like this, 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 and this. In reality, it's actually, according to God's word, global, personal, literal, and all that kind of thing. So uh, let's have a quick word of prayer and let's dive in again. Heavenly Father, again, we're going to study about your second coming, this time the manner of your coming, and help us to be sure that we understand and we're looking for the the right Jesus when he comes, because we won't want the counterfeit. We want to see Jesus Christ himself face to face. We believe it's coming soon. So Lord, please make us ready. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, well, remember this has been, for us, it's like, why are we going back to this text now? We'll go back to Revelation chapter 1. A couple reasons. You'll notice that in... Uh, the Unlock Revelation study guides, uh, I did my best to almost, I think every single one of them begins in the book of Revelation. And one of the criticisms you'll find sometimes is that you'll say, ah, I go to a Revelation prophecy meeting and we're talking about the Sabbath, we're talking about the state of the Deborah, but what about the Revelation? What about the Antichrist? What about the Mark of the Beast? We do get to those things. We're like, oh, it's only mentioned three times. But we want to demonstrate that all of the things we're discussing here are actually rooted in the book of Revelation, that Revelation speaks to these things. So, Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all the things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. Again, the issue is, what is that time? You're going to go through the same question. What is the time that we're looking for? It's the time of the coming of Jesus. Revelation chapter 22, verses 20 and 21. I like to bring up this because the very last words of the Bible. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. So even if these were back-to-back nights, they would dovetail nicely. But you remember, these are like two weeks apart now. Okay, so it's been a while. It's no problem to, to reiterate these things. But i just like to say, previously we studied the signs that tell us Christ's return is near. Now our study focus, uh, focused not on uh, the signs of Christ's return, uh, not on when Christ's return, but how Christ will return. What will that actual coming look like? Yes, sir. Yeah, yeah, end-time events, yeah. Yep, and it's a good time to slide that because you're, you're, you're going to notice that state of the dead, well, we kind of talked about this as a sweater unraveling, but there's certain doctrines that are so interwoven that like the state of the dead leads right to the judgment, which leads to the second coming, which leads to the millennium, which leads to the new earth, and all of a sudden you've got a package of a half a dozen or so doctrines that have to go connected. If you talked about one, you kind of have to talk about the others. And the second coming in the line of end-time events, like the mark of the beast and uh, uh, all this kind of stuff, well, it leads naturally to what's the resolution to that and what's the second coming. Well, then people have this idea that it's a secret. It is not. Let's see what the Bible says about it. Now, Isaiah 53, let's look at the, the contrasting Christ's first coming, the manner of his first coming, to the manner of his second coming. The first coming was closer to a secret event than will the second one be. Okay, Isaiah chapter 53 Speaking of the coming of Jesus, it said, He shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. He has no form of comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. 
Right? So it's talking about a very humble, very uh, rather almost obscure, very small thing. The first coming of Jesus. And he comes how? As a baby. To this couple in Bethlehem who were poor and there was no room in the inn, you know? And he was born in a manger. And the only people who attend him were the shepherds. And then the wise men came later. And it was very, um, rather unceremonious, right? Look what John chapter 1 verse 10 says about Jesus' first coming. He was in the world. And the world was made through him. And the world did not, what? Know him. Though he was the creator of the whole world when he actually showed up. It didn't really catch anybody's attention. I mean, the wise men, the shepherds, but they were earnest seekers. And the what you do was talking about how the Desire of Ages discusses how the angels were coming, looking for people who would be expecting and looking for and celebrating this first coming of Christ. And everybody was just like eating, drinking, just not, nothing. Going. And they were on their way back to heaven in discouragement. And they noticed that these shepherds are out there and they're seek, thinking about and talking about. And they said, well, here's some. Wow. And they got the glory song because they're the only ones cared. Now, compare that with Matthew chapter 25's description of the second coming of Jesus. Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. Notice what it says. When the Son of Man comes in His, what? Glory, and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. Now that's different language Matthew chapter 16 talks about it again. For the Son of Man, verse 27, will come in the glory of his fathers with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his work. So he's coming with reward. He's coming with the, in the glory of his Father with all the angels, where before he was a tender plant out of dry ground, no form of comeliness, no one should notice him. The world didn't know him. It's going to be quite different. There's a great contrast between the first coming and the second coming. So we'll walk, talk about how it will be both seen and heard. Unlike children, <laughs> Christ will be both seen and heard. Right? Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. Behold, He is coming with clouds, and every eye will see Him. It's hard to get past that passage. Now, by the way, as you go through this, it's going to seem so clear. You have to understand the secret rapture is a... Um, it's a theological construct that's not actually in the Bible, so it had to be put in there. So when you see, well, it says he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. What do you do about that? And they're like, well, that's the second second coming. There's a secret one before that. It's like, but it doesn't say that. Oh, but it is. Right? So they've got this. For instance, John 3.16, I think, is one of the most misunderstood passages in all the Bible. Yeah. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not what? But have. People will look at that all around the world. See, look, whether you're wicked or righteous, everyone gets eternal life. But that's not what the text says. What are the two options? Perish or live. Die or live forever. But what does most of the Christian world believe happens? Everybody lives forever. It's just how do you live? Yeah. Or where do you live? But in the text, it's living or not living. But you show them that, and they're going to see, mm-hmm, amen, I don't want to go to eternal burning hell. It's not there. But they look at that text, and they see it, because that's within their head. 
So it takes a while to kind of detox people from these notions. The same way they look at this text and you say, look, behold, he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Well, every eye that's left. That's not what the text says. <laughs> but that's within their head. So you think this is the most boring elemental. For them, you're walking them through a detox process. Right? Even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. And that's where we go back. If you want to, it's a good text to go with that. It's Matthew chapter 23, verses 37 to 39, when he walks out of the temple for that last time. He says, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Right now, I'm the unpretentious, humble Jesus. When I come back, you won't miss it. And he was talking to those who were going to kill him, right? Jesus was talking to those who would pierce him in the upcoming days. And the book of Revelation says, even they who pierced him will see him. So you see, I have the prophecy that Jesus gave, and then the Revelation describes it. Now, Matthew chapter 24, people will say, again, they're going to, and you're walking through a conversation. They may say, Yes, but that's the public coming. The secret one comes before that. And, I, and then you can point out that Jesus specifically warned, warned us against a secret, selective return. Matthew chapter 24, verses 26 to 27. Therefore, if they say to you, look, he is in the desert, do not go out. So, uh, look, at if you have to hear about it on CNN, it's not the second coming. Like, if you have to hear that it happened or is happening or I got a report from... No, it's not. And Jesus warned us specifically, if they say to you, look, he is in the desert, do not go out or look, he's in the inner rooms. It's like a mystical coming. It's a secret. It's like, don't buy into that. It's not going to be limited. It's not going to be secretive. It's not going to be quiet. It's not going to be some spiritual thing. Ooh, did he come? I don't know. And he says, 4, verse 27... As the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. And notice he uses the. It's the definite article, the. As in the singular coming. Right? The coming will be seen by all. Jesus himself says this. Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Talking about, again, remind them, we're talking about the manner of Christ's coming. You can remind them. We've already looked at the timing and the signs of Christ's coming. But the event itself, how will it happen? Well, Jesus has already come in reverse. Matthew, I mean, Acts chapter 1, look at verse 9. The ascension of Jesus into heaven. Now, when he had spoken these things, and notice, see if you can keep account of how many times visibility is referenced here. Now, when he had spoken these things, while they, what? Watched. He was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing into heaven? The same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him five different times. Saw, gazed, looked, watched. These are all references to visible. Look, he says, he's coming. Right? How many times is the coming of Christ predicated with a behold? Look. Not just look at the idea, but you can look, look every eye will see him. This idea of an invisible secret rapture, 
where Christ is talking about a visible public rapture. Anyway, but I want to highlight something else in here. Just look at the logistics of the ascension of Jesus. He was taken up, a cloud received him out of the sight. What did Jesus say repeatedly he would come with? Clouds, right? Basically, it's an undoing of the ascension. It's the descension, if you will. The cloud received him out of their sight, and while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by him in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? So he went from the earth up into heaven with clouds, and they could see it. Now they say, this same Jesus. We can refer, infer from this, not even infer, it's explicit. The same Jesus that went up is the same Jesus who's coming back down. It's not some sort of mystical, secret, spiritual, uh, 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 magical, coming into your heart type of whatever. It's not a metaphor. It's an actual person. Jesus Christ, the same Jesus, who you, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come, and what are the next three words? In like what? Manner. It describes how Jesus will come. It will come from heaven. It will be the same Jesus from heaven with the clouds and every eye will see him. He says, what you've just witnessed is the reverse of the second coming. He's going to come back. He's going to be the same guy the same way. Until then, go work in his vineyard. But this idea of Christ's return being quiet is nowhere, I mean, being, being invisible, is nowhere in Scripture. It's quite the opposite. And speaking of quiet, go to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, speaking of the second coming, verse 16 and 17. Now, it does get into the state of the dead in the previous verses, but just start here in verse 16. For the Lord who? Himself. Doesn't that go with Acts, this same Jesus? The Lord Himself will descend from where? Notice, remember, last time it was the Lord Himself who ascended into heaven. Now it's the Lord Himself who descends from heaven. With a what? With a shout. And notice, now look at the audible references. With a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. So if it's going to be visible, and it's going to involve a shout, and the archangel, and if that doesn't get your attention, <laughs> and the dead in Christ will rise first. If all the sights and sounds of Christ coming through the air aren't enough to grasp your attention, I'm guessing the ground itself releasing the dead from their tombs and seeing them go up while he comes down, you're not going to miss it. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them. And if you didn't see any dead people rise, how about the righteous rising? Pray to God we're one of them. Shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus, we shall always be with the Lord. It is in this way that we will always be with the Lord. This is a great state of the dead text. You don't go to be with the Lord the moment you die. You go to be with the Lord when you resurrect or get translated from this earth at the second coming. Our hope is not in the grave. Our hope is in the coming of Jesus. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So it does not take long at all. And if you notice on the back of this, I spend the rest of the time what should be our response to this? Since Jesus is coming literally, visibly, audibly, globally, personally, Jesus is coming. We're going to see him. We're going to hear him. It's going to be real. No one's going to miss it. 
since that is undeniably, inescapably clear from Scripture, our response should be, how do I prepare for that day? Because the manner of Christ's coming is very, very simple to establish from the Bible. It's very simple. And the real question is, what do I do to prepare? It's not going to be some war or thing. It's not going to be digging a bunker and collecting canned goods and bottled water. It's not going to be that. There's only... because. When you look at some of the things, we're talking about mountains we moved out of their ways, there's plagues. I mean, the whole earth is going to be undone. There is no physical safety. And even if there were, what, look at the people who run. What's their very last impulse? To run away from, run into the caves and just fall on us and hide us, right? What I would like to do, what I would urge you to do is transition from the facts of the manner of his coming. It'll be literal, visible, audible, all those kind of things. Establish that clearly from the word of God. And then transition to what can you do in light of this truth? You, the only true preparation is a heart preparation. And that's where I choose to spend the rest of the study on. And if I'm not mistaken, Brother Bradshaw does the same thing. When it talks about, um, well, he does ask, ask some secret rapture questions. Um, but how can a how can person, um, what urgent advice does Jesus give us in reference to his second coming? He talks about being ready and... Uh, both of these lessons combined talk about, like, it actually goes, and his goes back to the first study guide there, but how should a person live in preparation for Jesus' return? That's, it, that's how you want to land the ship. It's not just establishing facts, which is important. You want to convince them of the truth, yes, from the Bible. And hopefully it will cut them to the heart and convict them. They need to do something. But... Let me close here. Go to Acts chapter 2. When Peter gave a fact-based sermon, a Bible study, if you will, to the people who had just days earlier killed Jesus. Because you think about that. Again, the day of Pentecost was only 50 days after the weekend Jesus was killed. His trial, his execution, his resurrection. And they're back in town. For, why were they all gathered together at his crucifixion? Why were there so many Jews in town then? For the Passover, right? And now, at the day of Pentecost, why were there so many? Were they all anticipating some new spiritual thing is about to happen? No. They were in town for the next feast, which is Pentecost. Or its Old Testament name, the Feast of Weeks. So there were Jews all from all these many countries there. And it was on time. And so Peter preaches this powerful sermon it's 26 verses long, 13 are quotes from the Old Testament, 11 are explanations of those quotes, and 2 are appeal. And look at the appeal he makes. Therefore, verse 36, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, Peter was trying to establish the fact that Jesus was the Messiah and that he was now in heaven as their priest and judge, right? But if they were to say, oh, I guess that's true from the Bible, I guess, but what's the, con they are convinced that it's true, but what's the conviction on their heart? He was the Messiah and we killed him. Notice the response. Verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Friends, when you talk about the nearness of the second coming, and there isn't an escape from the tribulation. It's just going to be one and done. When Jesus comes, that's it. 
They're going to start thinking, and I need to get ready. So you don't want to end the study with, so do you see that it'll be literal, visible, global? You're like, yeah. And they say, good. Now we've established the truth. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. You don't want to do that. The real purpose is not just to get facts in their head, but get a faith in their heart, right? That they can have confidence. They can be ready for that event. Peter doesn't just preach the truth and didn't leave them hanging them. Because notice what they say. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? In response to this truth, what, is, what should I do? And I praise the Lord that it doesn't say, then Peter said to them, oh, there's nothing you can do. You're lost. You killed your Messiah. That's the unpardonable sin. What a marvelous God we can serve. We can even kill him and he'll still take us back. But they're sitting there. We killed the Messiah. And what is his response? Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. This is what we want people to do in preparation for the second coming is repent, make that heart preparation and be baptized into the body of Christ. That's the goal of these studies. It's not just an intellectual course. And I think that, and I know that we've discussed it, one of the things we're seeing with people who go out and give Bible studies now is that they're like, well, and <laughs> we've gone through the lessons and they get it. Well, the goal of the lessons isn't just to get it. It's what are you going to do about it? What decision, what commitment? And let me tell you, friends, we need people to go out and preach the truth. Yes, we do, but we also need them to make appeals. Friends, Jesus is coming soon. Do you want to be ready? You could even take the words of Peter, men and brethren, what shall we do? The words of the people to Peter. I would challenge you, don't make it just an academic nuts and bolts, we got through the course type of Bible study. Speak to them directly. Talk to their hearts. Friends, Jesus is coming soon. Do you want to be ready for that? Ask them and let, the, let it linger in the air for, there for a second. But the Lord wants to make heartfelt appeals to the lost. Because what did he say about his second coming? The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but all that should come to repentance. Remember that repentance is specifically in the light of the second coming. He's delaying it not just so people can know about it, but so people can be prepared for it by giving their lives to Jesus Christ. Especially as you get towards lesson 13, lesson 15, we're getting there. Make bold appeals. And that'll be the next step of awkward, I promise. Like, I already got in their house, and we're already sitting down, we're already studying the Bible. Yes, but now call for that repentance. And watch how the Lord will work. If they're truly convinced and truly convicted, then more times than not, they're going to be seeking for that conversion. Give them the opportunity. Make the appeal. I think that, let me close with this illustration to kind of lighten it up and bring home this point. And I don't know if I'll get to use this illustration again and it works nicely for this. Uh, the same wife, by the way, that I had those three babies with, um, <laughs> I, I also got married to beforehand. So she was my wife first and we had the babies. Praise God. And, um, but how we got engaged is, um, it's embarrassing, but it helps get the idea across, okay? First of all, I, I think I did it awesome. Let's be clear. Uh, but we, uh, she was taking a course in Washington, D.C. at the time, and I was in Florida, but I flew up there, and I was going to spend Valentine's weekend with her. I was going to see, and I had the day off while she was at school, and I spent the day setting up this big event. I went downtown. I scouted out the most expensive restaurant I could find. Uh, we're not doing that again. But... <laughs> But uh, it was really, and I, I introduced myself to the folks working there. I got the reservation made, and I made sure they even knew how to pronounce my name correctly. I didn't want them coming up, uh, yes, Mr. Uh, 
Carmen Devsher, or what? No, 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 it's Cameron DeVazier. Say, Mr. DeVazier, your table is ready right back here. Just say it right. Put the long A over there. Then I scouted locations where I was going to actually kneel down and do and the whole thing. I told her, hey, when you get home from, from class today, we'll study for maybe an hour or so, but let's get dressed up. Let's do something nice tonight. Sure. She knew what was up. But I wasn't going to give in like that. I was going to hold on to less. It was great. So we go downtown, which is dressed nice, and I look great. And um, <laughs> we headed downtown, and we walked in. It was just smooth as everything. We got in, and the dinner was going nice and everything. And I think she was anticipating any moment, any moment, right? And we had our full meal, and we were all done. I said, let's head out. About done? And I could tell she was a little disappointed, just like I wanted it. And we kind of leave, and I said, well, you know, before we head home, Let's, let's, just, let's just drive around. It's a beautiful evening. Let's go. And we drove over to this one particular spot I'd picked out. Um, one of the memorials there. Is, it's right, on the, right near the reflecting pool kind of area where the cherry blossoms are. It was just really nice. And I took a little bag out and I had a little gift for her. I had a little speech prepared. I spent the day writing this thing out. And when we got to the exact place, I got down on my knee and I uh, pulled out the gift and I read her my little prepared speech. She started to cry. To be honest, I started to cry. And I looked up and I said, I would be honored if you would be my wife. And she stood there just beaming, smiling. She didn't say a word. <laughs> and I'm still down here just like, and by now the tears are starting to dry up. And I'm like, <laughs> and so I repeat, I would be honored. <laughs> <you know? laughs> and it was, a, I, it felt like 30 or 40 minutes, but it was, <laughs> it was probably 30 or 40 seconds, but it was, so, it was tense. It was weird. And at some point she was like, that would be good. And I was like, would it? Is that? And so I stood up and I like, gave her a hug and she started walking. I was like, it was just awkward. <laughs> and, and we got in the car and I'd even made a mix, a CD mix of music we'd be listening to on the way back. It was great. I was playing it. But it just didn't feel right. It wasn't. And, it turned out, and she, I, I turned down the and I was like, look, did things get weird? What happened? She's like, well, Technically, you never asked me. All you did was make a statement about what you would like, but you never invited me to actually be your. And I said, oh, and we were in the car on the way home. I was like, fine, will you marry me? She's like, yeah. <laughs> and that's how we got married, right? But that was the thing. All the stage, and, and I was thinking, like, this speech will do it. And she was open to the speech, but I never actually asked. Just ask, Just ask right? <laughs> yes. And, and she was, like, waiting for the next thing, like, would you be honored, which would be followed up with, would you, would, I, you know. But I never went there. I was like, I would really like to be married. She's like, good. You know? <laughs> and that was it. <laughs> And I thought the deal was done, and I, went, I, was, I was ready. Oh, yeah, I really knocked that out. We do that in our Bible sometimes. Oh, they, they learned about that Sabbath. Good. Job well done. But you need to ask the question, are you willing to commit to Jesus Christ and keep his law on that seventh-day Sabbath? This week, are you planning on keeping the seventh-day Sabbath? Now that you know about the second coming, do you want to be ready? Do you want to give your life to Jesus?
Do you want to make a commitment to Jesus right here, right now? Actually ask what you want them to do. Don't just hope they get it. Ask. Is that clear? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for in your wisdom putting this treasure in earthen vessels. And Lord, forgive us where we have been negligent to ask at all or timid or unprepared or whatever our shortcoming may be. We all have some things we need to improve, but still you have entrusted to us what the Bible calls the ministry of reconciliation and that God through Christ is reconciling the world to himself and we are to be your agents in that process. Lord, please help us to know the truth, to share the truth, and invite people to commit themselves to Jesus Christ and make the changes that they need to make according to your word. Give us a courage, give us boldness, and let us see a harvest of souls. We pray it in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.